How many of you have either this Christmas season or some past Christmas season watched or read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Let me see your hands. Yeah, that's what I figured. It is probably one of those classics that we know best at this time of the year. As a matter of fact, since it was first published in 1843, it has never been out of print. Did you know that? And did you know that at least, at the very minimum, at least 43 different movie or television productions or adaptations of A Christmas Carol have been presented over the years, from live action to animation to everything in between. It is probably one of those most well-known Christmas stories. But what you probably didn't know was that before it was written, Charles Dickens was... Um, well, he was waning in his popularity as, an, uh, as a writer and an author. Uh, he'd kind of had a dry spell. Uh, they were out of money. His wife was expecting a child. They needed some income coming in, and he didn't know what kind of a story to write. And so he was walking one night through the streets of uh, work-worn Manchester, this industrial city where children were put to work and they were kept poor and where the rich kept getting richer. And he saw the devastation of what had taken place Place and he saw the, the, the poverty and he saw the, the class divisions and it sparked a, a note in his mind of a story of a miserly man who goes through some kind of a redemption and comes out on the other side uh, a, a great giver and sharer and joy giver. And in just a very short time, once he got the idea, he had written A Christmas Carol, and you know that it became an immediate hit. It was a game-changing moment in the life of Charles Dickens. As a matter of fact, it was a game-changing moment in England. It, the, the, the whole story transformed the English celebration of Christmas at that day and time. We're in a series. If you're, if you're new to this congregation this morning or if you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful. But we're in a series called Game Changer. And it is a study of the life of Christ as seen through the eyes of those whose lives he changed. And we're going to take a look at an incident that comes from the childhood of Jesus today, a, a time when Jesus was left behind. Now, I, I so wish, I so wish we had a lot more information about the childhood uh, of Jesus. There just is so little in the Scriptures, but there are so many questions. For instance, was Jesus a colicky baby? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to know? Did he walk early? What were his first words? When did Jesus start to pray? I'd like to know from his siblings, how was it to live with an older brother who really was perfect? I'd like to know, did he ever cut a board too short in the carpenter shop? What did he say when he hit his thumb with the hammer in the carpenter shop? Did he have a crush on a girl in the community of Nazareth? Now, I, I know why we don't have answers to those questions. Those questions and those answers are not relevant to the story. They aren't relevant to the purpose that, for which he came, which was to be our Savior. But sure would be interesting to know. The truth of the matter is, we know nothing about three decades of the life of Christ except for this one episode where Jesus gets left behind. Luke tells us the story in Luke chapter 2. It's a follow-up to the Christmas story, and it comes in verses 41 and following. So we're going to begin there. So let's look together. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year... 
His parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Now, this was a significant moment for Jesus. He had turned 12 and was now considered a man. Today, 12-year-old Jewish sons celebrate with a bar mitzvah, which means son of the covenant. At the time of our story, the 12-year-old Jewish boy was expected to keep the law was expected to learn a trade, and Jesus would have learned the trade of his earthly father, Joseph, that being a carpenter, and they were expected to attend all the great Jewish feasts. And on the religious calendar, the, the height of the Jewish feast celebrations was this one called Passover, and it would have come in the March-April time of the year. Now, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the siblings that came along later, they were a poor family, and likely they traveled to Jerusalem in a larger family group or a larger community group for, for several reasons. Number one, it would have been a lot safer to travel as a big group during that day and time. It would have been more economical. You could have shared food and, and supplies and that kind of thing, and it would have been a lot more enjoyable. You travel with other people. You're camping out at night. It would have been sort of a social event. There were some 210,000 people that would throng into the city of Jerusalem. And as these worshipers came from all over Judea for the Passover, and they, as, they, as they approached the city of Jerusalem, they would be singing the Psalms of Ascent. Now, those were the Psalms uh, from 120 through 134. And you could hear these worshipers and the, the sounds echoing off the hills. It, it had to be an absolutely extraordinary moment in time. And while I'm sure this was not Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, as a 12-year-old, it would have been his first trip to the temple. It would have been his first glimpse at the temple money changers who he would later drive out of the temple for the deceitful practices. It would have been his first experience at seeing the ceremonial washings. It would have been his first time to be pressed in by this crowd of thousands and tens of thousands. Now, for a boy from a sleepy town of Nazareth, that would have been quite a sight. And if indeed this was his first time at the temple, it would have been his introduction to the whole idea of sacrifice. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine what went through the mind and the heart of Jesus as he saw the sacrificial lambs offered to commemorate that night 1400 years before when Moses had told the slaves in Egypt the Hebrew slaves to mark their doors with the blood of the lamb so that they would have life instead of death here at 12 years old stands the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world did he wince as those lambs were slaughtered to present life did his hands tingle at the thought of Roman spikes someday piercing his skin. I wonder what was going through the mind and the heart of 12-year-old Jesus. The story goes on. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began to look for him among the relatives and friends. <laughs> when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
Now, if we translate Luke's uh, writing here, literally, it says, when the days had been accomplished, not when the feast was over. And I think that's significant. You see, the whole Passover feast lasted for a total of seven days, but Jewish worshipers were only required to stay for the first three. And, And Mary and Joseph, and probably many of the people of Nazareth being poor folks, I suspect that they started home after the third day. It would have been a lot more economical for them to do so. Historians tell us that teachers stayed in the temple courts for all seven days, but after the feast was over, they were not available in the temple courts any longer. So, I'm suspecting that they all went home, Jesus is left behind, and in the days following the first three, he's meeting with these teachers of the law in the temple courts. It says they found him on the third day. Now, that doesn't mean they, they searched all of Jerusalem for three days. No, it means that the first day was the day they left Jerusalem and got out to where they camped that night and discovered that they were, um, well, they were missing Jesus. The second day would have been the travel from the campsite back to Jerusalem, and on the third day, on, on the third day, they found him alive and well in the temple courts. That which was lost was found. That which they thought might be dead was found alive on the third day. Oh, don't miss this picture. This is one of those grand three-day stories that God tells over and over and over again through His Word, that on the third day there would be the new life, there would be the new story, there would be the good news, and this is one of those good news stories in the Scripture. On the third day He was found alive. You see, it wouldn't have been unusual for a young boy to have been among all those travelers and away from his mom and dad. And so I got to cut Mary and Joseph a little bit of slack, but they make an assumption. I don't know about you. I get great joy out of this story because Mary and Joseph dropped the ball. They goofed as parents. Now, I don't know if that makes anybody else feel better, but it sure makes me feel a whole lot better. Sometimes we look back and we think, oh, this must have been a perfect family. Well, they weren't. They weren't perfect. Mary thought he was with Joseph. Joseph thought he was with Mary. They didn't know where he was. And that's a disheartening feeling for any parent. So, on the days when you drop the ball as a parent, on the days when you drop the ball as a husband or wife, on the days when you drop the ball as a worker, just remember, there are no perfect families. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect situations. And I'm sure glad this story is there to reaffirm the fact nobody in this world except for Jesus was perfect. Verse 47 says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, one of the the ways that rabbis in that day and time taught, one of the educational processes was through questions and answers. It was a good way, still is a good way. Questions and answers is a good way to learn. That wasn't the unusual part, that Jesus was listening to the answers and asking questions. (laughs) The unusual part was that he was answering questions and that his insight and his understanding was absolutely astounding and amazing to these who were teachers of the law. And Mary's response, she's just a typical mother. They've been three days apart now. You don't know what's happened to your son. You walk in, and there he sits calmly talking with the teachers of the law, and there's this first feeling of relief. And then there's the question, what are you doing to us? 
Your father and I have been looking for you. Didn't you know that? And, and his response was, well, I had to be in my father's house. I had to be about my father's business. Luke points out that nobody quite understood all of that at the time, but there would be a day when all these pieces would come together. Now, you say, well, why this story? I mean, you got three decades of the life of Christ, the early life of Jesus to choose from. Why would you pick this story, Luke? It's because I think that this is a game-changing moment in time. It was certainly a game-changing moment for those people who were around Jesus in that day and time. At this time, Annas was the high priest. And I cannot imagine, folks, that somebody didn't say, hey, Annas, you got to come and hear this kid talking in the temple. And that he heard this Jesus, and I've, I've wondered, you see, because 21 years later, it was the same Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who would lead the charge to crucify Jesus. Did he remember this child of 12 that astonished him in the temple courts? It must have been a jarring moment for Joseph as well. You know, 12 years can kind of fuzzy your, your memories a little bit. And after raising this son for 12 years, I mean, Jesus felt like his own boy. And Mary, did you hear what Mary said? Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. <laughs> and Jesus' response though tender and respectful, must have jolted them. Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? I must be in my father's house? And, and where he was was not a carpenter shop. It was the temple of God. And suddenly Joseph is brought back to this reality. This is not my son. This is the son of God. And Mary... The text says a little bit later, Mary treasured up these things. She began to ponder. She began to remember and study these things. And I don't think it was until after the resurrection that all of these things that Mary had placed in her heart like a stack of dominoes, just one toppling the other until all the pieces came together and she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that she had been privileged to bear the Son of God who would become the Savior of the world. You see, it, this, this was a life-changing, game-changing moment for all of us. And I really think, folks, it can be a game-changing moment for us, too, if we'll take home some lessons. Just a couple. Just a couple lessons real quickly. First one is, don't leave behind words of good news. Jesus got left behind. But don't you leave behind words of good news. wonder what Jesus and the teachers of the law were talking about. Were they talking about Isaiah or Micah or the prophets or the Messiah? I can't help but think that his words, though, were hopeful and good news. Jesus, as 12, would have been very respectful of his elder leaders. He would not have been in their face. He would not have been harsh with them. He would have been sharing the good news, the hopefulness, the positiveness of what God was going to do and what God had in charge, in control, and that all the blessings that God had poured out, and they stood there astonished. But that was the character of Jesus, and that's why people loved him so much. Two chapters over in Luke chapter 4, this is what we read. It says, the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving town. But he said, I must preach the gospel, uh, the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Why was it that people didn't want him to leave? Why was it that multitudes followed him wherever he went? It's because what he said was good news 
in a day and time when there wasn't a whole lot of good news. In a day when foreign Romans controlled the Judean cities, when there was bitter rivalries and contentious class envy, when there was so much unrest in the culture, the hope and good news of Jesus was what everybody needed. I'm telling you, folks, it's not a lot different. Uh, Times have changed. Customs have changed. Human nature hasn't changed. Uh, 2015 already is unsettling. There are reports that the economy is still shaky. There are expectations that anonymous cyber attacks will become a growing problem, that that might affect financial institutions next. There are widening economic divisions in our country. Our nation is more polarized over multiple issues today than what it's been in the last several decades. North Korea and other similar nations are more unpredictable and scarier than ever. Homegrown terrorism is on the rise, and the list goes on and on. And I'm thinking, we're only four days into a new year. Could I hear a little good news? But that's not the nature of our culture and world. And it wasn't a whole lot different 2,000 years ago. Folks, do you realize that when Jesus as a 12-year-old came to the city of Jerusalem to worship, that he might very well have seen the countryside dotted with Roman crosses and people crucified. As this last year has closed, In its waning weeks, there was so much tragic news. Ferguson, Missouri was and still is a place of unrest. Now, some of you know, but some of you probably don't know, uh, that every time I would hear about that and Elsie would hear about that, that that really touched our hearts. Um, Ferguson, Missouri was where I cut my teeth on preaching. When I was a junior and senior at St. Louis Christian College, I shared the pulpit with one of my professors. He preached one week and I preached the next week. That was at the Ferguson Christian Church. And because Elsie and I both served there during our college years, we got married there. And we spent our first year after we were married serving the church there. So when I, when I heard the news of all the things that were going on in Ferguson, my heart was breaking because I loved that community, and those were wonderful people. They still are wonderful people there, and and we need to continue to pray for the unsettling feelings that are going on in our country around such places like Ferguson. New York City, two police officers were needlessly and cruelly gunned down. Uh, You may not know this, but Officer Ramos was uh, uh, studying to be a chaplain. Uh, The other police officer, uh, Officer Liu, his, uh, his funeral is today. No profession, especially ministry, is without its charlatans and embarrassments. I realize that. But for the most part, I have the deepest of respect for the men and women who put their lives on the line to protect us all and keep peace in potential times of chaos. The police officers who are a part of this congregation are men and women with whom I would trust my life and more than that, with whom I would trust my families lives. I think we need to pray for a lot of people daily. I I think we need to pray for peace in our land. I think we need to pray for protection for the people who live in this country. I think we need to pray for the protection of those who serve all of us in our country. We need to be 
a voice of reason. We need to be encouragers and sharers of good news in Christ because I'm convinced that the only place we will find peace is in the Prince of Peace himself, and only he will be able to settle the discord. That's why what we say and do as Christians is so important. When Jesus said it, it was good news then. When we repeat it, it is good news today. It is a message of hope that overrides the negativity and the brokenness of this world. Just think about what we have in Christ. If you struggle with your financial concerns, just remember in Christ you are rich in joy today and rich in assurance for the future. You may feel alone in this world. You may not have any physical family left, or you may have said goodbye to some of the dearest people uh, in your life this year, but you have family. In Christ, we are your family, and we are the family that's going to spend eternity with you too. So you're not alone in this world. Your body may be wearing out, but in Christ, your spirit is being renewed day by day. That's good news all the way around. It's good news that our sins can be forgiven in Christ. It's good news that we can have eternal life in Jesus Christ, that this world is not all, that we're just passing through, that the best news is still yet to be. On the gray and gloomy days of life, and we've had a lot of gray and gloomy days lately, the good news in Jesus keeps us going. Let me ask you a question. Do you work with a henny penny? You know who I mean? Henny penny was the sky is falling, the sky is falling. You work with anybody that's a henny penny? Oh, everything, it's, it's just a terrible thing. The sky is falling. Can I remind you to remind them that this world is in God's hands. And this world is going to be here as long as God wants this world to be here. He is its creator. He is its sustainer. He is the one who owns this world. So when there's fear that the sky is falling, you just say, I know the God who is holding the sky and the world in his hands. And I trust him with every day. When Henny Penny says the sky is falling, you tell him that, will you please? Are you married to an Eeyore? You know who Eeyore is, don't you? Uh, Eeyore is Winnie the Pooh's ever-glum, sarcastic, and pessimistic donkey friend who has trouble keeping his tail attached. That's not the only thing that goes missing with Eeyore. He couldn't find a positive thought in a room full of sunshine and apple pie, folks. Now, if you're married to somebody like that, it's easy to get down. You just keep your focus on his promises. You keep reminding your Eeyore spouse that in Jesus Christ, things are good. I have a, a book written by Herbert Lockyer in my study just down the hall here, and it's called All the Promises in the Bible. And Herbert Lockyer estimates, he contends, that there are about 8,000 promises in the Bible. Now, I know not, not, not all those promises apply to us. Some of those are specific to different people and to different nations and to different things. But a God of 8,000 promises? Have you ever made out 8,000 promises, let alone kept 8,000 promises? Our God is a God of promises, and he keeps those promises. And, and on the unhopeful days, on the gray and gloomy days, you just keep remembering he is a God of promises. And tell Eeyore not to worry. God's in control. So when the days aren't easy, try the following. Celebrate as much as you can. 
Find some reason every day to celebrate something. A family member has a baby. Celebrate. Uh, you, you get a tax refund. Celebrate. Your friend gets a raise. Celebrate. You stay a week through a whole sermon. Celebrate. Find something every day to celebrate. Because when you celebrate, you're honoring God's good news. Smile as much as you can. Watch something that will make you chuckle. Read something that's funny. Laugh with other people because laughter is so enriching. It takes fewer face muscles, folks, to smile than it does to frown. And since your face has to wear something, wear a smile. It will help others and it will help you. Of all the traveling that I've done speaking and teaching for TCM, the place that sticks out in my mind is the saddest was Belarus. When you walk down the streets in Belarus, I never saw anybody smile. That weighs on you. It's like a cloud. So I'm telling you, Smile as much as you can. It'll make you feel better. It'll help other people. Be as positive as you can. If you can interpret something two different ways, always choose the better of the two. Give people the benefit of the doubt. And before you get frustrated, and I get frustrated, I've got to always ask myself this question. Is being frustrated over this worth letting go of the joy of today in order to nurse a grudge or not? And most of the time, it's never worth letting go of the joy. Ask yourself, is this going to matter tomorrow or the next day or a week from now or a month from now? And if it's not going to matter, then don't let it matter today. Be as positive as you can because the good news is in Christ we have hope. And then here's the other thing. Don't leave behind priorities that matter. Now, I want you to see how this story ends. Jesus demonstrates genuine respect and obedience to his earthly parents. And, and this is the brief summary. Verse 51, it says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Look at verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. I, I can't think of a better philosophical way to approach this year than that. Grow in wisdom, grow in favor with God, grow in favor with other people. I don't take any explanation. It just takes doing it. Pray for and grow in wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Do you lack wisdom? Then ask God. He'll give it to you. Pray for and grow in favor with God. And you say, well, how do I grow in favor with God? Real, real simply, be faithful to him and obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, it's not easy to do, but it's easy to understand how to do it. Grow in your favor with God and pray for and grow in your favor with others. Work hard at getting along with other people. Don't be obnoxious or arrogant or judgmental. No one is interested in hearing the good news from a bad grouch. Be honest, but be loving in your honesty. Be kind, but be uncompromising with God's word in your kindness. Grow in favor with God and grow in favor with others. So, so what, a, what a terrific goal. I want to be wiser this year. I want to honor God more. I want to grow in favor with others. Charles Dickens is best remembered for a Christmas carol. But his best work 
was never intended to be published. It came along a little bit later, and he began writing the story of the gospel for his children. From the birth of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus, he entitled it, The Life of Our Lord. It was finally published in 1934 after his son had passed away, Dickens' son, and his widow gave permission. But he opens this book, The Life of Our Lord, with these words. He says, my dear children, I am very anxious that you should know something about the history of Jesus Christ, for everybody ought to know about him. Oh, that's the good news. And that's our responsibility in 2015, to live the good news, to share the good news, to be the good news to somebody else, and to live in such a way that the good news will be visible in all that we do. So don't get left behind when it comes to the things that really matter. Do you know the one who is the good news?